Welcome back, metalheads, to the next installment of Life According to a Metal Dad. In this episode, I'm going to be talking a little more about metal history. I'm going to be picking up where I left off at the end of the 60s into the 70s, the beginning of the new wave of British heavy metal, and a little bit into some of the contributions that punk gave to the metal scene in its infancy. I'm also going to be talking about the new Dreaming Dead album, and I'm also going to be talking about the new Overkill album. Cue the music! So I'm always trying to improve the quality of audio that I put out in anything that I do. And it's kind of a funny story. I'm really proud of how much it has improved from the last episode to this one just by making a couple small changes. I was recording on a condenser mic in my garage, a.k.a. my Metal Dad headquarters slash studio. And I was picking up a lot of background noise from the condenser mic. It will pick up a mouse fart from two blocks down. It's that fucking sensitive. And it works out for some things, but for sitting here talking and not having shit interfere, it wasn't so good. So I ended up buying this handheld recorder through Zoom Electronics, and it's fucking phenomenal. I'm actually sitting outside in my car because I can't fucking sleep while I record this for all of you listening. So I hope all of you metalheads enjoy what's to come throughout the rest of this episode, knowing that I'm putting the effort in to make sure that I deliver something that will be a good product, and that'll be enjoyable to all of you. So I wanted to talk about this new album, Funeral Twilight, from Dreaming Dead. And it's kind of a funny story how I came across this band I just recently got back into playing guitar almost a year ago, and I had purchased my first Floyd Rose Bridge equipped Junior V, and I had no idea what the fuck I was doing with the Floyd Rose. It's a huge pain in the ass for someone who has never dealt with it. So, needless to say, I went to YouTube, which is become the educational source of this day and age. And I came across this video of a young woman named Elizabeth Shaw. And she was talking about how she set up her Floyd Rose, some tips and tricks, things like that to make the whole process a lot easier. And she ends up in this video talking about how she likes to have her guitar set up for when she plays on stage and stuff like that. And I'm like, whoa, not only is a chick proficient with her equipment, which is something that all guitarists should aspire to be. You shouldn't have to depend on a tech. She's actually playing in a band and she's actually playing live. And 
why this intrigued me is because a lot of people, a lot of guitarists that I come across on YouTube just play on YouTube. They do covers, they do their own stuff, and not detracting from that, some of them are freaking amazing. But I like to see people that go out and put on shows and perform live in front of an audience because live music's what keeps this industry and this community going. Word of mouth is more powerful than any other type of marketing. So I end up checking some of their stuff out, and I really dig their live tone. Elizabeth Shaw is a phenomenal front woman and guitarist, and just watching their presence and how they interact with the crowd and the effort they put into their performance, you can tell that they've put the time in and they've planned and they've done everything up to the performance itself to make it go over smoothly. I started following them shortly thereafter on social media, and here at the beginning of the year, I see that they announced that a new album's coming out, and I had looked into them previously and some of their music, and it had been a couple of years since their last album, and so I figured they were due anyway, so it's awesome that the timing just worked out when it did. Funeral Twilight dropped on February 20th of this year. I ended up pre-ordering it, and it came in that day in the mail, so that's always awesome. But that's enough background. Let me get into the music itself. To put things in a way that those of you who haven't heard any of Dreaming Dead's music before, think of Anthems of Rebellion era Arch Enemy. As far as vocals go, it's very reminiscent of an Angela Gossow. But at the same time, it's just got this more sinister feel than Arch Enemy does, and there seems to be a lot more intricacy in their guitar playing as well, and it's something that myself as a guitarist can always appreciate. From the very beginning of the album, the first track just grabs you, punches you in the face, and pulls you in. And I like the way that bands record today. Because a lot of times that's what they do. And the good ones, they'll put that track out there in the front. It'll pull you in. And then you're just along for the ride at that point. And when it's done right, the energy will decrease towards the middle. And then it'll pick back up towards the end. I love the whole feel of the album. And I love how they change their tempo to make it not as two-dimensional. It's a full-bodied album. I picked it up at the Hammerheart Records online store. They shipped it within a couple days, and it was overall a good experience with the whole shipping process as well, because I know some of you might be interested in how much of a pain in the ass ordering from this label is. It's not at all, so that's one less reason for you to not buy this album. And I know I didn't really get too much into detail, I don't plan on getting too much into detail on this episode because I'm going to be putting into a new practice to where anytime I mention 
a new album or an album that has interested me along the way, I'm going to do a track-by-track track review on my website. I'm going to take it, break the album down by track. I'm going to tell you exactly what each track feels like, what message they were trying to convey, if any, and give you a more full picture. Because honestly, I need to practice my writing more, and I think it'd be kind of cool to have somewhat of a companion to what I'm speaking about today. Now, I'm not going to let you guys go without hearing any of this, so I'm going to introduce you to Dreaming Dead by playing this track called Your Grave off of Funeral Twilight. Masses of sickness, all disease, not knowing 
Off of their new album, Funeral Twilight, which came out on February 20th of this year, as I mentioned before. And I can't recommend this album enough. Not only is it a phenomenal compilation, supporting artists that are trying to come up more into the mainstream and make it into this industry is of the utmost importance to me. And I don't say that just to be, you know, the cliche, support your local band guy even though you should, but I want it to be so much more than that. Someday, the big names that we know, think of your favorite band right now. They're going to stop playing music, and it's up to us in the community to fill the void before it exists. So what we need to be doing is we need to be finding the next Metallica. We need to be finding the next Cannibal Corpse, the next Nightwish the next maiden. I tried to represent all the different subgenres, but I, I'm not going to sit here and pick and choose from every single one. I think you guys get the picture. And we need to be looking to find these people and to put them in these positions to where when Metallica retires or any of these other people that I mentioned or any of your favorites that you were thinking of right now retire, these people are going to have to take up the slack and if we're not involved with it, and if we just let the industry dictate it, we're going to end up with a bunch of bullshit, and the scene's going to die out. And metal music in itself has done so much good for me in my life, so much, in fact, that it left a lasting impression that I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life. And it's something that I want my children to be exposed to throughout their lives as well. I'm not necessarily trying to force them into this. I'm not trying to push metal down their throat. It's more about sharing a different perspective. I can't speak for every single one of you, but I know that growing up, I had my dad's music playing all the time. And, you know, my dad came up in the mid-70s, early 80s, is when he was going through, you know, his teenage years and young adulthood, and that's where his music tastes were cemented, and it included people like ACDC, Van Halen, Rat, Rush, and many others of that time period. And hearing this around the house, I gained an appreciation for rock and glam metal and the beginnings of what would be thrash and speed metal and i took the tastes that my dad had compiled them into my own and then i took it one step further and i searched and searched and searched for the next heaviest thing and before i knew it i was into the melodic death metal and i was into the thrash and i was into way more than what i started with and it was kind of an adventure that's how I look at it, at least. And I want to be able to expose my kids to as much as possible so that they can take some of my experiences and they can add on to them. 
and they can make them better. So this is why I put so much emphasis on supporting local music, supporting regional touring artists, supporting independent bands, unsigned bands that you may have heard of, you may have seen a random YouTube video that they sponsored, you may have seen a random music video that some internet magazine like Loudwire or Metal Sucks picked up on, and what is there to do with this? Well, the reason that they put these videos out, which should come as no surprise, is to gain exposure, but if you're just looking at it, and saying, oh, that's a cool video, and not doing what you can to support some of these acts that you might have seen or heard through these other outlets. And if you stand by and do nothing, then that one video is going to be all that they do. They're not going to be able to continue. Because ultimately, music is a business. Not necessarily in the sense to where it's impersonal, or to where that there's no emotion behind it. It's a business in the fact that these people that are going out and making this music, that are going on these tours and living in vans from state to state, city to city, it's it's their livelihood. This is their job. And its success rests on the shoulders of those who they play for. So even if you don't necessarily like them, somebody will. I'm sure each of you have friends that have different tastes, and you could point them in that direction. That's providing support for them. You don't have to necessarily buy all their stuff, but diversity in the metal scene is what's going to keep it going. If it just turns into watered-down alt-rock, then it's going to die out. We're going to lose the heaviness, and that's not a world I want to live in. Nothing against alt-rock or the people that listen to it. It's just not my metal. And if you're listening to this, it's probably not your cup of tea either. So moving on. Recently, I purchased Overkill's new album, The Grinding Wheel. And I've got to be honest here. I'm not that familiar with them. I had heard a couple of their songs through the years, but I'd never gotten really big into them. Being as I'm trying to go into this business myself, and I'm trying to stay up on current events, and I'm trying to expose myself to as much as possible, because ultimately I look at myself as a student of heavy metal, so that one day I may become a teacher, and I may teach the next generation after me the entire rich history of what came before them, and what came before me even. So... I looked into Overkill because, as I might have mentioned a time or two, I listened to a lot of Sirius XM radio, specifically the Liquid Metal channel, and their single, Our Finest Hour, has been getting a lot of playtime, and it did up to the album release as well as afterwards. And it's a really catchy song. It just had this reminiscence of the early thrash scene. And that stuck out to me because so many bands are trying to modernize their sound, so to speak. But the ones that I enjoy the most are the ones that have stayed consistent. I'm not saying the ones that sound the exact same track to track to track. But if I listen to the first album of a band 
and their most current, I expect to be able to tell that it's the same band, and a lot of times that's not the case. And so this kind of piqued my interest, so I bought the album, and I started looking into it more and more, and throughout the entire album it still had that feel of the authentic early period of thrash and i'm not going to get too much into it as i said before i'm going to be doing a track by track review but i am going to share with you a song that i really enjoyed off of it and then i'm going to kind of leave it up for i'm going to play a song that i really enjoyed off of it and then i'm going to talk about it because that's what i'm here for so here is Goddamn Trouble, the second track off of Overkill's new album, The Grinding Wheel.
Once again, that was Goddamn Trouble from Overkill off of their latest release, The Grinding Wheel. After hearing it, I'm sure that all of you can understand where I was coming from when I was talking about that old school feel that they had. And I went back and listened to some of their older stuff. And aside from some of the obvious technological advances and the slight difference in tone, it's got the same feel. You can tell it's the same band. And that's what I like. I like bands that stay true to themselves and to what made them in the first place. And they keep that throughout a career. And the shitty thing about it is a lot of these people that do that don't see a lot of commercial success. And that's because the industry is always changing. And a lot of times these guys miss the train. But as far as I can surmise, Overkill had a solid release and I can see this thing selling a shit ton of copies because it's just fun all the way through. Some of these bands, they're just this brutal fucking guttural into the mic the entire time. It's all serious, which is good for some things. But every once in a while, you just got to cut loose and just put something that's fun to listen to on. And that's what this is. It's just nonstop throughout the entire album. Just gets me going. And I feel like I strike gold every time I come across a band that I didn't really get into before that gives me that kind of feeling. So those of you that are fans of the early thrash scene, these guys came out of Jersey. So the same neighborhood that Anthrax came out of. And you can see a lot of similarities in their playing. But while Anthrax took the more refined approach with their latest album, which was phenomenal, by the way, if you haven't heard For All Kings in its entirety, you need to go do that ASAP. But anyway, for everything that Anthrax was in its refinement of their latest work, Overkill seemed like they were making it a purpose to go back to their roots. They've had many changes over the years, as I've noticed throughout listening to their catalog leading up to this podcast, and... It just really seems like they're making the attempt to go back to what made them overkill in the first place. And that's something that I can get behind. So I highly recommend you at least take a listen to Overkill's newest album through Nuclear Blast Records. They have it on their site for order. Amazon has it. It's available for stream on all of the major streaming services. I cannot recommend it enough. So last time in your middle history lesson... I talked about Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, and how the general counterculture of the 60s led way into this new style of music that was heavier than anything ever heard before, and the sense of rebellion that came with it. Now, where I left off, it was the mid-70s, and Judas Priest was starting to cut their teeth in the working clubs. At the same time, Punk rock was taking its hold. It countered the glam of millionaire bands like Kiss and Led Zeppelin. Their mismatched clothes and partially shaven heads attracted a younger crowd that was equally as rebellious as the generation before them. The punk movement was centered around London's fashion districts, such as the King's Road Shop, founded by Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren. The early and most rudimentary punk sounds were inspired by people like Black Sabbath, as well as some 50s doo-wop. At the time, it was a huge focus for the music industry, and there began to be little support for heavy metal. But the nature of punk rock 
was fleeting by design. A lot of these bands would stop playing music once they hit mainstream. Once they had commercial success, that was it. They had reached the top, and they had no aspirations of doing anything else because they stood for being the opposite of a lot of these big, rich, famous bands of the time. And they were about being the have-nots. And the support wouldn't stay there for them when they reached a certain level because it was against their culture. Punk rock generally evaporated with success, which is kind of ironic considering how popular the art form was and that genre of music was and that lifestyle was at the time that people would shun acts that made it to the point where people could recognize them and they were benefiting from commercial success. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm talking to you about punk rock. This is supposed to be metal history. Now, to understand the next point of heavy metal, you have to understand what punk rock did for the music industry. And what it did is it renewed England's musical identity. It started a fresh wave of rudimentary heavy metal acts. At that point in time, the unemployment rate in England was reaching almost 20%. And people were looking for work. And they were seeing that these bands were being able to make a living off of their music. So more and more started to pop up in England's music scene. This culminated in the meeting of the two cultures between punk and heavy metal in 1977 when Motorhead's self-released album came out. It was led by an Ian Kilmister, who we know as Lemmy, who started his career as a roadie for Hendrix then went on to the LSD-fueled space rock band Hawkwind. What made this band so attractive was that they were purely about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They were living the life that so many of these people that were struggling at the time wanted. This led to a lot of commercial success at the time. And it showed that metal can succeed without sacrificing its identity. Sabbath can be credited with starting heavy metal. Judas Priest can be credited with giving it a spark. And Motorhead can be credited with fortifying it. Up to this point, punk got more people into performing on stage as a distraction. And a lot of working men's clubs were starting to feature a lot of these smaller bands And a lot of them were taking residencies in clubs at this point. And though heavy metal wasn't a popular art form, these bands would antagonize their audiences into a reaction if they didn't get one. Bands like Judas Priest, Saxon, and Raven are what you could expect to see at any run-of-the-mill music club of the time, playing in between bingo and raffles that would happen weekly. They were expected to play a lot of covers, but there soon was a transition that made heavy music become the center of attention. In order to give you an accurate representation of what music sounded like at this point in time, and to show you how music had evolved from the last episode on this subject, I'm going to play you the self-titled Motorhead song off of their first album. And I picked this one because... It is the first song 
on the album. And it was the first glimpse of what Motorhead was. And I want to show you what they were like at their very beginning. Because I'm sure if you're listening to this program, you're familiar with a lot of their hits. Whether you know it or not, there are Motorhead songs that I could play right now that I'm sure you would recognize. Maybe you just didn't know it was them. But I wanted to play you a sound of their beginnings. So this is Motorhead, the self-titled track off of the self-titled album. The self-titled track off of the self-titled album. Now, at this point in history, heavy metal still wasn't looked at in a positive light 
by the mainstream music community. So a lot of heavy metal bands were overlooked and true to the heavy metal attitude. People started making their own labels since they couldn't get signed to major ones. And it led to this sense of independence within the industry that continues on today. If you won't sign us, fuck you. We'll make our own label. And the beauty of this is that a lot of these independent labels couldn't compete with the major labels at all. But because it had become ingrained in this culture, fans of this music all of a sudden thought it was cool to be independent and small. The media supported it, so the shops stocked it, so the people bought it. Bands designed their own record covers, very rudimental designs, usually in black and white, compensating for the rich, eye-grabbing, expensive art that was seen on album covers of those that were reaching a great deal of commercial success. As the word began to spread, British music papers, like Sounds and New Musical Express, started to cover the likes of these bands. They introduced readers to London frontrunners, Iron Maiden, and Def Leppard, along with a whole colony of lesser-known bands still making their rounds in the English clubs. It was a sounds writer by the name of Jeff Barton that popularized the term New Wave of British Heavy Metal, usually shortened to the conveniently written but incredibly awkward acronym NWOBHM. Now, I'm sure some of you have probably seen that acronym and weren't sure what it was. Now you know. It's the New Wave of British Heavy Metal. And as you can imagine, typing that out is a little more time-consuming than just placing an acronym. One thing to note is the new in new wave of British heavy metal often meant inexperienced. Most of these people were starting bands purely because they had seen that it was a viable option to a regular 9 to 5. So naturally, there is going to be a big gap in talent from the top to the bottom. There was little amateurism at play with bands like Iron Maiden. They basically took the gothic layers of Judas Priest with the immediate sense of danger from punk rock and combined them. Wearing black shirts and silver spikes, they controlled the stage with authority. What Iron Maiden brought to the table would be the formula for heavy metal in a multitude of subgenres from then on. They played with fast unison guitar pressions instead of a series of chords. Most of their songs were unusually aggressive for the time, consisting of complex melody lines, while the two guitarists hammered and pulled tricky compliments. From Judas Priest, Maiden took the finger-stepping arpeggio guitar phrases and histronic singing, and like Priest, they took pride in being a heavy metal band, because previously... Living under the moniker as a heavy metal band was looked at negatively by a lot of the artists. And it was at this point where they started to embrace the culture and who they were, their individual identities, so to speak, as artists. Iron Maiden's self-released first EP hit the streets in 1979. The sounds of Iron Maiden, Invasion, and Prowler. These were the songs that spearheaded the new wave of British heavy metal scene. The tapes were voted number one by London radio listener requests, even prior to being officially released. England embraced Iron Maiden because they loved their country, and they were joyous as much as they were macabre. 
In February of 1980, Iron Maiden performed Running Free live on Top of the Pops, and then later on in the year, released its self-titled album. It was at this point that British heavy metal was in the spotlight. There were a great number of albums that started to appear, and sharing space at the top was Saxon's Wheels of Steel and Def Leppard's debut On Through the Night. To understand the sound and the feel of heavy metal at the time, picture something under pressure. There were multiple layers of rhythm and melody delivering an explosion of high-speed sound. They took the flashy ethos in heavy metal songwriting and accelerated it. The power behind the two-guitar sound became a central element to heavy metal of the time, and it encouraged more complex arrangements to be created. Even the most basic bands learned tempo changes, guitar solos, and shifting the mood and energy across different points of the songs that they were writing. It was at this point in time that Judas Priest stepped in to be the figureheads of this movement. They capped 1980 with the triumphant British Steel album. The album, in and of itself, with its title and songs like Metal Gods, name-checked the English heavy metal phenomenon. At this point in time, Judas Priest survived the punk movement in London, and they toured briefly in America with Kiss. It was these experiences that created a more streamlined approach for the band. Living After Midnight and Breaking the Law emphasized the chanting chorus instead of elaborate classical constructions. It was a big breakthrough for Judas Priest, according to Rob Halford himself. And to take a picture at this point in time, the end of 1980, there was no comparison between 1970s hard rock and the forces behind the new wave of British heavy metal. The people even looked more aggressive after 1980. Instead of flowery, billowing hair, open shirts, bell-bottoms, and thick mustaches, heavy metal bands dressed in tight-fitting black leather and synthetic materials decorated with pointed angles, lightning bolts, and shiny metal, and spikes. And it was actually funny to see the role that heavy metal was taking at this point in time, especially in Great Britain, where Judas Priest called home. Touching larger issues that were first brought up by punk rock, Iron Maiden took it a step further, and they attacked their own prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, and they depicted her being axed in an alleyway as she tried to tear down an Iron Maiden flyer on the picture sleeve of Sanctuary, a single that they released at the time. The British government responded with a formal censure. And ironically enough, Prime Minister Thatcher was later nicknamed the Iron Maiden by the mainstream press. Not only did they leave their mark on heavy metal music history, they left it on the history of their country. It was at this time when black leather jackets under ripped denim vests started to pop up. They were adorned with band pins, motorhead, tin lizzy, deep purple back patches, and this whole biker image was embraced by the heavy metal community. And it was personified by Judas Priest on their stage performances. At the end of 1980... And into 1981, 
metal started seeing more coverage in the mainstream press. Sounds Magazine spun off its coverage of the new wave of British heavy metal in June of 1981 to create Kerrang! And it instantly became a Bible for heavy metal enthusiasts and a staple of the community as a whole. The first issue featured items on Diamond Head, Venom, Raven, and Jaguar. There were glorious color photos of Lemmy and Michael Schenker of UFO. And there was also an investigation piece on the curiously British home life and rustic tea-drinking habits of Saxon. The magazine had a reputation for being attracted to talent. The cover of Kerrang! Number 1 pictured a sweaty young guitarist by the name of Angus Young dressed in his trademark schoolboy uniform. Inside, there was a list of the 100 greatest heavy metal singles of all time leading up to then, which is funny to look back at because the extent of the industry was nothing compared to what we take for granted today. It was a lot more limited, and the sounds were all very similar. It wasn't anything like the diverse communities that we have available to us. But this list was topped by ACDC's Whole Lotta Rosie at the time. And though they weren't really a British band, they were a key common denominator of the new wave of British heavy metal. And oddly enough, the second cover of Kerrang! featured a leather-clad Rob Halford of Judas Priest and Peter Bifford, a.k.a. Biff, of Saxon, who at that point in time were the singers that defined the role of heavy metal frontmen. Now, to understand this mindset, I'm going to play you the first track off of the British Steel album by Judas Priest. Here is Breaking the Law, which became the battle cry for the heavy metal movement.
And that was Breaking the Law by Judas Priest. And I'm sure at this point you can see how it became an anthem for those who followed through the new wave of British heavy metal. That's it for this episode. Next time, I'm going to be talking to you about the American Wasteland and talk to you about how British heavy metal crossed the seas into the awaiting embrace of the American people. Once again, this was your heavy metal music lesson. Paraphrased from the Sound of the Beast, the complete headbanging history of heavy metal by Ian Christie, available through Bazillion Points Publishing. So because I have no shame in my life and I'm up for pretty much sharing anything with any of the listeners, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn.com. You know, I try to keep a whole professional image, do a pretty good job of keeping track of past work experiences, education, interests, and all the things that make me marketable as a potential employee. And it's all pretty much led up to this point. I'm finally about to get my degree and I'm looking to go into the music industry. And I found a part-time job as a metal music reviewer that I'm going to be applying to right now, actually. I am putting my resume together as I'm reading the description. And it's for Mixdown.com. It's unpaid, but it's something that I'm doing for free anyway. So hopefully, you know, they see some value in me and get my foot into this industry and bring you guys along with me on this journey that I'm taking. The only qualifications that they have are the most qualified candidates will be those who are passionate about music and passionate about writing. Check. Check. Also extremely important are punctuality, attention to detail, and clear communication, especially regarding email. Writing skills are very important, but the candidate's starting skill level is not as important as the willingness to learn and improve over time. I'm going to leave that with you guys to be the judge of whether or not my writing was good. I would like to hear it, so leave a comment either on the website, on the Facebook page, or wherever I may be sharing this at. Actually, by the time this goes live, it should be on iTunes, so all of you, you know, leave me some feedback. Go to my website, metaldadpodcast.com, and let me know what you think of my material thus far. I'm always looking to improve, and, you know, the little things like this are... Fun for me to share with everyone. I'm trying to stay grounded. I'm a you know normal person. I don't have delusions of grandeur or anything like that. I'm doing this because I love metal music and I want to progress in the industry. Let's see how this goes. So anytime through this, I'm going to be pausing it while I have to type or do some excessive clicking. I will spare you guys and girls that because ultimately I want you to listen to me again. And that would be a bunch of bullshit if I just wasted a bunch of time typing and shit like that. So I've got my resume pulled up for the last position that I put in for. I'm not even going to go into that because it's kind of embarrassing. But I figured since I'm doing this, I might as well give those of you who maybe are trying to work on your image in the professional aspect. And those of you who might have trouble writing resumes and shit like that. And kind of give you a crash course while I update mine. So generally what I like to do, I have an objective. It's the first thing that's on the page after my contact info and shit like that. And basically I put what I want to get out of applying to this position. So 
I am going to basically put a little blurb in here about why they need to hire me as a music reviewer and why I'm the best metalhead in the world, so to speak. And so I made it pretty simple for my objective. I put that I want to attain a position with Mixdown.com, that's the company, as a metal music reviewer and journalist, as the title states. So when you're doing this, you want to make sure that what you put in your resume echoes or parallels what is in the position that you're trying to get. Because ultimately, if it's too far away from what they're calling for in the position, you're just going to get overlooked. I mean, more times than none, it's just a machine that overlooks these things. It's not even people that do the initial screening. So you want to make sure it mirrors the position as close as possible. And what I generally do next is I'll do a little summary, who I am, what I'm about, my specialties, basically traits and qualities that I think make me marketable for whatever position that I'm going to be applying for. So in this case, they basically want somebody who can write and talk about heavy metal music passionately. And well... (laughs) I'm already on that. I've been blogging on it for quite a long time. I've been listening to it pretty much my entire life. And I think I can speak on it pretty easily. I mean, I'm doing this whole podcast thing, so that's got to count for something. So basically, I'm going to be looking into ways to put that into words in a tangible way to where they can see, oh, this dude's fucking awesome. Let's hire him. So I will share with you guys my summary that I came up with. A lot of it, I don't want to say it's cut and paste, but a lot of it I use on a lot of different resumes. And basically, like I said before, you want to play on your strengths. And right now, the big thing is hiring veterans. So I make sure in several places on my resume, I make mention of my former service, skills that I acquired in the service, and how that translates into the business marketplace. So basically, I put, you know, I'm a former unmanned aircraft operator with eight years in the aviation reconnaissance fields, looking to expand my skill set into the music industry. I am a phenomenal public speaker and presenter who loves positions where I am able to meet and interact with new people regularly. I served for eight years in the United States Army, during which I acquired a unique set of skills, which includes traits such as leadership, punctuality, conducting safe operations, attention to detail, leader development, and accountability of personnel. I pride myself on my ability to succeed throughout ever-changing areas of operations in order to meet my organizational goals. I work relatively well in a team setting and am able to translate my personal and professional experience into the workplace seamlessly. I'm able to think on my feet and improvise well when unconventional solutions are required. So, everything that I did there, I just made fancy speak for I was in the military. It taught me everything that I needed to be to be successful outside of the military. And then I gave them something tangible. These are the traits. Bam, 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 and bam. I work well in a team setting, and I can translate everything that I've been through in the past into solutions for the future. Everybody should be able to do that. If you are a functioning adult and have survived thus far, you should be able to do that. So that's probably something that you're going to want to put into your resume when you get to the point where you're putting one in. Or if you just want to beef yours up right now, there's that. So what I generally do next is I'll go into an education section, an experience section after that. And what I put in each is, you know, in the education section, of course, you know, If you have a college degree, you're going to want to put that first. 
I generally will put either the most recent or the highest level of education first. So basically like bachelor's degree will go first, then little certifications that I have like my OSHA general industry and safety cert I put in there after the degree that I'm working on. I've got the American Red Cross basic life support, basically a first aid course on steroids. But I put it on there because it's nationally accredited by the American Red Cross. And it's something that a lot of employers will actually look for because that means that they don't have to train you in it and it saves them money. So things like that will make you a little more marketable. As far as experience, it's pretty self-explanatory. I put all of the positions that I've worked at in the last 10 years. I don't go much past that because I did a lot of shit when I was in the military and I don't want to write a book. I want to write a resume. So, you know, I just put 10 years, the most pertinent responsibilities for each position. Like here, I'll give you an example as the position I put podcaster, journalist, and founder for metal parenting enterprises, which is my company that I started basically to back everything that I'm doing with the podcast and kind of keep my personal stuff and my business stuff separated. And for responsibilities, I put things like create media content regarding heavy metal and parenting for the Metal Dad podcast and blog. Remain current on new releases and significant events within the metal community. Publish content to the main webpage via WordPress. Maintain constant relations with local and regional touring bands with the end goal of working with major signed metal acts. So I put that in there, and this is something that you might want to key in on as well. Putting things like that in there, if you have something that can lead to something bigger, like, for example, I'm keeping constant relations with local and regional bands. I'm not doing that to stay at the local and regional level forever. I would like to be working with, you know, the big name bands and stuff like that. And employers want to know that you're wanting to continuously improve on your position. They don't want to hire people that appear that they're just going to be stagnant. They're only going to bring a little bit of value to the company and then fall off. That's, you know, a bad investment for them. And ultimately, it's not something that they're going to be very receptive to. So marketability, that's the big thing. You're selling yourself in a resume and you're trying to give the employer the most bang for their buck. As far as that, in addition to it, I took the job posting and basically looked at what they wanted on the job posting and I tried to make my work experience sound more like what they want on the job posting. I'm not fucking lying about my qualifications or my experiences. I'm just wording them to where they're similar to how they're listed on their posting. So that's another thing that you might want to do. Also, read the posting very carefully because a lot of times they'll sneak shit in there and you'll miss it and you'll get fucked out of a job that you might have qualified for and might have had a good chance. Like this one at the very bottom, it's got... I'll actually read it verbatim for you guys. All right, so right here... It says, in addition to the resume and application, to reply with a brief cover letter, a 300 to 1,000 word writing sample, preferably about music and a list of five artists you would consider to be your favorite metal artists. So shit like that gets overlooked all the time. A lot of times people will just submit a resume and that'll be the end of it. And they don't look at the fine print and they get fucked. 
they get completely overlooked when, you know, they might be the best person out there for the job. So attention to detail is very important in this whole process, ladies and gentlemen. So exercise it. And then lastly, ladies and gentlemen, what I like to do is at the very end, I have a skills section. And what I do there is I basically throw in as many keywords as I possibly can that relate to me. Like I said, you don't want to fucking lie on your resume. You don't want to make shit up, but you do want to tailor it to skills that you possess. So, for example, on the job posting here, they're asking for experience in WordPress. They're asking about people who are passionate about music and about writing and are very detail-oriented, especially regarding clear communication through email. So I'm pretty sure that a functioning adult knows how to work email. So you can add that as a skill. Anything that you are physically capable of doing, you can add as a skill. So for skills, I'll give you guys a couple. I'm not going to read through the whole fucking list because, like I said, I'm trying to help you, not bore you. So for skills, you know, I put... WordPress, excellent written and verbal communication skills, social media operations, attention to detail. I generally will throw in the Microsoft Office suite just because everybody, well, I'm not going to say everybody, I'm trying to stay away from generalizations, but a great deal of businesses use Microsoft Excel, Word, and PowerPoint. And that's what I listed here because I am very familiar with it. And if any of you listening or not, get familiar with it. It will pay in dividends for your inevitable job search later on. And I also put you know, an unparalleled passion for heavy metal music. And just for fun, I threw in that I'm a thrash metal connoisseur. Just because, you know, I wanted to break it up a little bit. You know, if I can get him to smile, hopefully I can get him to remember my name on the top of the resume and get the phone call and ultimately get the position. So... We'll see how it goes. I hope that you ladies and gentlemen got something out of me doing this with you guys. I mean, it's not along my normal subject matter, but, you know, it's about life. This whole thing is about my life as a metalhead and as a parent, and part of that is advancing my career. And hopefully if I can give enough of you tools to advance yours, then... You know, some good will come out of doing all of this. So I just, I just hope you guys get something out of this because I pretty much had to stumble across all of this shit by myself and learned what worked and what didn't through trial and error and giving you guys a little cheat sheet, a little walkthrough, hopefully will put you in a better position than I was. And when you guys are executives at big metal music labels and shit like that, you'll remember me and give me a job there. <laughs> but in all seriousness, take something out of it. I you know, did this for you guys, and I just hope you enjoy it and get some use from it. So before I ended everything, I wanted to be a little candid with everyone. I've got this idea, and I think it'll go over well. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, this whole thing, that this project that I'm trying to do, I'm taking the Metal Dad name and I'm making songs about what parents go through. And I'll give you, I'll give you an idea. All right. So the first one that I'm making, it's a song called Obey. And it's basically me yelling at my kids for not listening 
for not picking up their toys, for not putting their laundry away. And I, I took this funny approach in writing the lyrics, but this serious composition at the same time. And I, I think it's something that people get a kick out of. I would have appreciated something like that. And I'm not trying to get anything out of it. I'm doing it because I like it and I want to keep the other metal parents entertained and involved and teaching their kids about this lifestyle and this music that we've all learned to love up to this point. Expect a short demo on the next episode once I mix and master it. Still got some work to do on the vocals. And I'm looking into getting a drummer so that I don't have to use a drum machine. But thus far, I'm really happy with how it's turned out. And I'm sure that all of you will be as well. And that's all that I have for you this time. I'll see you in about two weeks on Life According to a Metal Dad.